knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. When a foreign national lives in our country, but he's an employee of another country, when he gathers information and builds relationships in our country for the benefit of his home country, and when he acts as a public representative of his home country, we call him an ambassador. He is representing the the country that he's from, and he's dwelling and being an ambassador in our country. But when a foreign national does these same things but keeps his foreign allegiance secret, We call him a spy. As Christians, we are ambassadors for Christ. And we can't be effective ambassadors for Christ if we're trying to hide what it is that we are, if we're trying to keep it a secret. If you're trying to hide that you're a follower of Jesus, you're not going to be a very good ambassador. You're going to be a spy for the Lord. And he hasn't called us to be spies for him. He's called us to be ambassadors for him. And each one of us is called to represent Jesus to this world. And this morning, we're going to start looking at two specific areas that Jesus says we are his representatives, two things that we are as Christians that we are to be doing within this world to demonstrate our relationship with Jesus Christ. And those two things are salt and Light, And so we're going to be looking at what it means to be salt and what it means to be light and how we can be salt and light and why it's important for us to be these things within this world. You know, I'm sure as you look at the news, as you look at politics, as you look at social media, as you see kind of the state of our country and where it is right now, it's very clear that there's a lot of spiritual decay a lot of spiritual darkness within our country right now. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who would love to see a moral change, a lot of people who would love to see politicians act differently and and others change the way in which they behave. I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to see morality grow within our country. And then there are those who are Christians that say, you know what, we want to see a spiritual awakening. We want to see a revival. We want to see people come to know Jesus. And what we need to understand is it starts with the church. If we want to see the spiritual decay in our country change, then we need to be salt. If we want to see the spiritual darkness in our country change, then we as Christians need to be light. You know, in my lifetime, I haven't seen a more important and crucial time for believers to be salt and light than right now. Our world is in desperate need of ambassadors for Christ, of people being the salt and light of Jesus in the world that we live in. And so what we're going to look at this morning is very 
important for us to understand and to grasp. And, you know, both of these things are, are great things to, to really dig into. And so this morning we're going to be focusing on what it means to be salt, on how we do that, on why it's important. And then next week we're going to focus our attention on light. But before we kind of break them up, I want to read the whole thing that Jesus shares, and I want to share and highlight a couple of things about both of them together, and then we're going to emphasize most of our time this morning on looking at what it means to be salt. So let's see what Jesus has to say to us about being salt and light in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. It says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The first thing I want to share about what Jesus says here about salt and light is something that is often missed. I know that personally I missed it, you know, many times as I read it myself, as I heard people with the challenge of you need to be the salt of the earth, you need to be the light of the world. And it was something that I just didn't get. And I want to really clarify and make sure we don't miss that. And the first thing I want you to note are two important words. You are. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus is telling us as believers in Christ, there are two things that you are. Once you place your faith in Jesus, you now become salt and light. That's what you are. So notice Jesus doesn't say, you shall become the salt of the earth once you do this, that, and the next thing. You shall become the light of the world once you do this, that, and the next thing. He says, you already are. That is what you are as a believer in Christ. You are salt. You are light. Actually, the Greek word translated you are here is indicative, which means it's a statement of fact, not imperative, which means a command to be something. So Jesus isn't saying, you need to be this. He's saying, you already are this. And so he shares this with his disciples. He's sharing this with us. Hey, I want you to understand something that you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And this is important to understand. The day we accept Jesus Christ, a lot of things happen that change. We become a new creation. The old thing has passed away. Behold, things are new. One of the new things is now we are salt. Now we are light. And the reason I bring this up is because so often we're taught this passage. We study it ourselves. We come to the conclusion, I need to become this by doing this thing and by doing that thing. And I need to become that. And there's certain things I got to do in order to become it. Instead of realizing, no, it's already something that you are. Something that you become when you accept Christ. Now, Jesus does reveal that there are certain things that we need to do. We need to do them because of what we are. Not to become salt and light, but because we're salt and light, there are certain things that we should do to represent what we are. And so that's really what he's focusing on. Hey, you guys already are salt and light, so now you need to live in such a way to represent what you are as salt and light in this world. Paul basically tells us the same thing in Ephesians 5.8. It says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
When Paul says you were once darkness, he's referring to what you and I used to be before we accepted Christ. Say, yeah, we were once in darkness. We were once lost. We were once living for ourselves. We were once at a place where we didn't know Jesus. But once we accept Jesus Christ, now we are light in the Lord. Now we've come to the light and we are light. He's saying the same thing that Paul is. It's not something that you become. It's something that you now are. But then notice what Paul goes on to say. Walk as children of light. Because you are light, live like it. Because you are light, represent what you actually are. Now it's important to understand that it's possible to live in a way that does not represent what you are. We see this in all sorts of different roles in society. You know, when Scarlett, my firstborn, was born, I had a new role. I now became a father for the first time. And because I'm now a father, I need to live in a way that represents who I am. I need to take care of my daughters. I need to love my daughters. I need to provide for my daughters. I need to protect them. I need to teach them. I need to be there for them. But it's possible for me, it's possible for other fathers to not represent what we are. And sadly, in our culture today, we see a big problem in this area where there are many fathers who are walking out on their families. Many fathers who are not representing what they're supposed to be, not living the way that they're supposed to be as fathers. So they have that role, that's what they are, but yet they're not representing what they are by the way in which they conduct themselves with their families. And the result of that is they give fathers a bad name. A lot of people have a real negative view of fathers because many fathers give them that because of the way in which they deal with and treat their family. Now, we could look at so many different roles. I mean, something that's in our culture brought up a lot. I don't think it's quite as true as people claim it to be, but there definitely is truth that there are police officers who are corrupt. They have a role. We expect them to do certain things. We expect them to to serve and protect us. And there are some who are corrupt, who are not law-abiding citizens, and they give the other police officers a bad name. And I would imagine most of them are good. Most of them are doing what's right, but it only takes a few to make all the rest look like, oh, we can't trust the police. They're always out to get us. Well, there are a few that are corrupt, and they're giving a bad name to others. Well, you know what? When it comes to Christianity, we're supposed to be salt and light. And when we don't represent what we are, when we don't represent Jesus Christ, it gives Christians and Christianity a bad name. Many people want nothing to do with Christianity, want nothing to do with Christ, not because of how Jesus lived, not because of what Jesus taught, not because of even what the Bible says, but because of their poor experience with Christians. Because of looking at how Christians live and saying, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. Because those people are a bad representation of what Jesus calls us to be. So Jesus is not telling us to become salt and light. He's telling us we already are salt and light. And as salt and light, there are certain things that you and I need to do to represent what we are. And when we don't do those things, we give Christianity a bad name. The first thing I want you to understand is that reality. We are salt and light. We can waste what we are. We can misrepresent what we are. 
Our salt can lose its saltiness, so to speak. Our light can become dim. And I want to clarify, this isn't a salvation issue. This is a witness issue. This isn't like, well, I'm not very uh, effective in my salt or or light. Now I'm going to lose my salvation. No, this isn't a a matter of salvation. This is a matter of witness. We're not the salt that we should be. We're not the light that we should be. We're not effectively reaching people who are lost for Christ. Our witness is hindered. Our witness isn't effective in the culture that we live in. We're still going to heaven. We're not losing our relationship with Christ, but we're not impacting those who don't know Christ in the way that God would want us to do. The second thing I want us to note here is where are we meant to be salt and light? Notice we're told you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The place that you and I are meant to shine, the place that we are meant to be salt the most is in the world among the lost people that don't know Jesus. You know, for many Christians, the only place that they want to shine, for many Christians, the only place they want to be salt is here on Sunday at church. Oh, I'm happy to shine for Jesus on Sunday among other people uh, who are already believers in Jesus. I'm happy to be salt among other people who are salt, but but I don't want to be that among the world. I don't want to be that in the everyday life. I'll do that on Sunday, but you know, when I go to work on Monday, nope. Tuesday, nope. Wednesday, nope. No, I'm just going to do it among other Christians. But that's not where it's needed. Where it's needed is in the world. Where we're meant to be the salt and light is among those who don't know Jesus Christ, who are lost. John Huffman said this, This sanctuary can be a salt shaker. You can come in here once a week, have a lot of fellowship with all the other salt, and think your job is accomplished. Instead, God wants to pick up this sanctuary and shake you out all over this city. He has brought you together as His salt, only to scatter you. He wants you to be an influencer for Jesus among the lost. So don't just be salt on Sunday. It should be a mindset that says every day, wherever I go, I want to represent Jesus. I want to be someone that is an ambassador for Christ. I want to be someone who influences this lost world for him. So at work, I want to do it. In my family that don't know the Lord, I want to do it. At school, in my neighborhood, wherever I am, I want to be this salt and light. And I need to understand where it's most needed is among those who are lost. The fact that the world is decaying and in darkness should encourage us to try to impact it, not isolate ourselves, not insulate ourselves from the world, which is so often what Christians do. You know, oh, the world is bad and it's full of sinners, and so let's isolate and insulate ourselves. Let's only spend time with other Christians and never influence the world, and we'll be so great. Well, that might help us in some ways with certain temptations, but it surely is not beneficial for the world that's in desperate need of us to impact them. You know, Joseph, we've been looking at his life on Thursday nights as we've been going through Genesis. We see the influence and the impact he made in the very pagan city of Egypt. We see Daniel doing the same thing in Babylon. And they are great examples of being salt and light in the midst of a very ungodly culture where God uses them to be wonderful examples and to influence people for him. Now, for us to understand what Jesus is saying when he says you are the salt of the earth, I think it's important just to take a step back and realize what was the significance of salt in his time 
because I think the significance of salt in our time has kind of lost its value. Uh, we don't see it for what Jesus would have seen it and what his disciples would have seen it for what it was in their day. Because in our culture today, the main thing salt is used is to season food. You know, pretty much every restaurant you go to, every home that you go to, you sit down for dinner, almost everybody's going to have a salt shaker there. And what's the purpose? If the food isn't flavored enough, you put a little more salt on there and it's something that we have access to. We don't think much of it. We don't value it much. It's a commodity that seems like everybody in our culture has. I mean, you can go to even a fast food restaurant and collect as many little packets of salt as you want. It's just something that's readily available to us. But in Jesus' day and culture, salt was extremely important and extremely valuable. It was so valuable that actually many people got paid in salt as opposed to coins because you could trade it. It was very valuable. Many Roman soldiers were paid in salt, and that's where we get our phrase, worth his weight in salt. Uh, more wars have been fought over salt than gold. You know, which is kind of a crazy thought. You look through history, they've been fighting more wars over salt than they have over what we would think, well, gold, surely. And there are two main reasons why salt was so valuable in Jesus' day. And if you read commentaries, you know, some people will go on these lists of like 10 or 15 things of what salt can do. And I don't want to do that because I think Jesus is using an example and he's using what would have been clear to the disciples. What was the main purpose of salt in that time? And so I just want to focus on the two main purposes of salt that Jesus would have been probably referring to, that the disciples would have thought of right away when they heard this comparison. And so the first reason salt was so valuable, the most important reason in that culture, is it because it preserves things. Now remember, Jesus is living in Israel. It's a very hot climate. There are no refrigerators. There are no freezers. There's no ice. So whenever you have any type of food... You need some way to keep it from decaying. You need some way to preserve it because you catch a fish, which, you know, the disciples would have done because they were fishermen. You know, you, you, you slaughter an animal and you want to eat its meat. Well, how do you keep the meat from rotting and decaying? Well, you pack it in salt. That's what they used. They didn't have the refrigeration. They had salt. And so they would pack fish. They would pack meat in salt and it would keep it from decaying. It would slow down that process and it would preserve it so that they had enough time to be able to consume it before it became and went bad. And so salt preserves things. It keeps things from decaying. And as Jesus spoke this to his disciples, this is probably the first thing that would have come to their mind. That's why it was so valuable, because obviously food is extremely valuable. It's necessary for our survival. And so salt was essential to keep the food from going bad. And so one of the first things that would have come to mind as Jesus compares the disciples and says, hey, you guys are salt. As he says it to us, they would have thought, hey, This is something that preserves things from decaying, something that preserves things from rotting. And I think that's such a wonderful illustration for us because we live in a world that is spiritually 
rotting, a world that is spiritually decaying. Our country is not getting more spiritual. It is rotting. It is decaying. You look at where we were when we were founded on biblical principles, on biblical morality to where we have come. We not have, we haven't gotten closer to God. We have strayed farther from Him. We haven't gained more of the Lord. We've lost more. We've removed Him from schools. We've removed Him from so many parts of our culture. And so we're going the wrong direction. Our country is spiritually rotting and decaying because they have abandoned God and biblical truth and biblical morals. And the one thing that's going to slow down that process, we look around and we think, man, I I hate to think of where my girls are going to be when they're my age. What kind of society are we going to have? What kind of culture is it going to be like? How immoral will it be in the next 20, 30 years? Well, I don't want to see that slow down. I want to see, you know, the depravity and, and the spiritual decline slow down. But well, well, how does that happen? Well, it happens through believers being the salt that preserves. We are the ones that have the gospel. We are the ones with biblical truth. These are things that this world desperately needs. They might not know that they need them, but this is what they need and this is what ultimately slows this whole process down as people hear the gospel, come to know the truth, as people discover biblical morality, what is truly right and wrong, and start to live based on those things. Now for salt to keep meat from rotting and decaying, it's got to stay in contact with the meat. You can't just have a pile of salt over here and rotting meat over here and say, oh, it works. The salt actually has to come and make contact with the rotting meat to keep it from the decay, to keep it from rotting. And I think that's just a, a very great word picture for us. Vance Havner says this, Salt must be brought into contact, close contact, with whatever it means, uh, sorry, whatever it is meant to affect if it is to do any good. Christians are the salt of the earth. We must be willing to be rubbed into the decaying carcass of an unregenerate society. You know, that's, a, I think, a great word picture for us because no one wants that. Yeah, I really want to be rubbed into a decaying carcass. That sounds wonderful and great. But that's how we look at the world so often of, you know, they're just decaying. They're sinful. You know, they're rotten. There's all these wicked people. And we kind of say, I don't want to be rubbing next to them. I don't want to be touching them. I don't want to have what they have. And, and so there's a part of us as Christians that kind of try to isolate and insulate and say, you know, I don't want to be an impact on these people because I don't want to rub with decaying corpses spiritually. But yet, the only way we're really going to preserve is if we do. we got to be willing to say, you know what, I am going to be in the world, not of it. I'm going to influence it. I'm not going to hide from it. I'm not going to run from it. I'm going to be that light and that salt. I'm going to be that person who helps preserve those who are lost. We cannot be a preserving influence in the lives of unsaved people if we don't spend time with them. Now, for many of us, our life naturally brings us into contact with unbelievers through work, through school. We have neighbors. We have family. You know, it's not hard to have relationships with unbelievers. You have to kind of go out of your way to avoid that. And as believers, we shouldn't. We shouldn't try to avoid contact with unbelievers. We should recognize we're the salt. We're what they need. If we avoid them, they're, they're hopeless. 
I mean, look what happens when, you know, the, the righteous are removed as we went through Genesis and even look at a place like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, once the righteous are gone, the judgment comes. The place gets worse and worse. I can't fathom how the world's going to be when the church is removed. When the power of the Spirit is gone from us because we're out of here and the, the, the good work of the church is gone, how horrible this world will be at that point in time. But we're here and we need to be that preserving influence for the time that we have here. You know, one practical way that I think we can be that preserving influence within this world that we live in is by standing up for what is right and true and by living those things out in our lives. You know, there are certain people with whom company you keep that kind of encourage you to do good. And then there's other people that when you're in their company, they encourage you to do things that are bad, things that are wrong. My mother is one of those people that when you're in her company, you're encouraged to do good. I'm sure that for most of your mothers, you know, that's the reality. You're with her. There's a difference in your behavior. You know, I wouldn't even think about telling a dirty joke, swearing, you know, doing some of the things that I did as a kid in the presence of my mom. You know, when my mom was there, I was like, you know, I better be real careful with what I say. I better be real careful with what I do. I used to hate watching movies with my mom if they weren't PG, because if there was anything in that movie, any cussing, any, you know, even slight, you know, um, sensuality or something, right away, she'd be telling my dad, turn this stuff off. And, you know, we never finished half the movies we started. We actually stopped. Empire Strikes Back in the scene where Yoda and Luke are talking about the Force. My mom thought, you know what? I don't want that Eastern mysticism in my home. And we turned off the movie, and I didn't get to see it for like another year. So, you know, there's all these things that she said, you know what? I want to be an influence for good in my children. And so when they're around me, I want to encourage them to do what's right. And I think it's great to be that person you know, not in a legalistic, judgmental way, but just to be that person who lives right and godly, and it's an influence. I, I love flying. You know, the last long trip I took was to, you know, Kenya when we did our mission trip, and inevitably you'll sit next to someone, and they'll start talking with me, and unless they right away ask what it is you do, you know, I find so many of them, they just start sharing, and they're cussing, and they're doing different things, and then they'll get to the point to say, what is it you do? And I tell them I'm a pastor, and all of a sudden they're just like, oh, and they're thinking of all the things I just said and like, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, but just sitting now next to me, there may be a part of them is a little uncomfortable, but another part of them, they're thinking, I better not swear. I better not say this. I better not do this. Just my influence next to them with their knowledge of, you know, what I stand for has, has a good influence on them. But you know what? There are people who do the exact opposite. My mom was the good. My brother was the bad. My brother was one of the worst influences in my life when I was young. He was the first one to offer me drugs. He was the first one to do a lot of things that, you know, I regret and look back on. But, you know, a lot of my friends, they, you know, regularly encouraged swearing. And you know what? I felt uncomfortable not swearing with them. You know, it's like everybody's cussing. And, you know, if you don't, you kind of feel out of place. And there's just certain people and certain groups that you're with that are encouraging you to do what's wrong and others who are encouraging you to do what's right. And so one of the ways that we can practically be that preserving influence is be those who live it. Don't just tell people this is the right way, this is the wrong way, but as you live it in front of them, 
Because once at work you say you're a Christian, all eyes are going to be on you. They're going to know how you live your life, how you respond to trials, how you respond to loss and difficulty. And you know your responses, the way in which you live, the way in which you speak can be a wonderful preserving influence for good in the lives of those who are lost, who are looking for, you know, hey, I, I want that. I, I, I wish I could respond that way. I wish that was my life. So the first reason salt was so valuable in Jesus' day is because it preserves things. And since we are the salt of the earth, we need to have a preserving influence for good to this lost world. To the way we speak, the way we live our lives, that we would live in such a way through the power of the Holy Spirit that we would connect with the lost world and help preserve them from spiritual decay and rot. The second main reason salt was so valuable in Jesus' day is because it flavors food. Right now, some of you are getting hungry for some French fries. I'm sure most of us have had really bland food in your life. Um, how many of you have heard of a Scottish restaurant? You haven't heard of them because they don't exist. Why? Because their food is horrible. I lived there for 11 years. It's super bland. It doesn't have any spice at all to it, and it's just not very tasty. You know, Jenny likes going to little coffee shops, and we were taking her to one, and we both had the only thing that they were serving besides coffee, which was sandwich and soup, and it was, you know, a chicken and rice soup. And from the taste of it, the only thing in it was water, chicken, and rice. I mean, it was so bland, and there was a salt shaker, but it was like, you know, all the water and the condensation was in there, so you barely get any salt. And we're sitting there forever trying to get enough salt in this soup so it was actually edible. Um, but you know, salt is something that is so important for flavor. We need it. You know, we don't like food that doesn't have salt on. I mean, you if you're given a, a bag of popcorn that has no salt, it's kind of bland and it's tasteless. It's like eating air, and all of a sudden you put salt on, a little butter on, and now it's an amazing little snack. We're pretty spoiled here because normally all we have to do is grab the salt shaker. It's always there. It's always accessible. But in Jesus' time, that wasn't that. It was so valuable that people, especially poorer people, wouldn't have had the ability to flavor their food all the time. And so it was a treat to be able to have that flavor of salt in your meat and in your grain and your food. And this is another main thing that when Jesus shares about salt, would have come to the disciples' mind. It's something that brings flavor. And I think that's an important reality because in our world today, people are searching for so much. They're trying to ultimately, you could use that term, they want to find flavor. What tastes good in life? And they, they try to find it in drugs. They try to find it in sex. They try to find it in money and power. There's all these different avenues of, you know, I want to find something that's going to taste good to me. It's going to fulfill my life. And it's empty. Because we know what the Bible clearly reveals. There's only one thing that's really going to have a lasting fulfillment. Something that truly is going to taste good and never get bad taste in your mouth. Because the Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. So yeah, right away maybe it tastes good and then all of a sudden the consequences come and, and the bad reality and taste come with it. But there's only one thing that truly has that flavor that's always good, and that is that relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, Christianity is to life what salt is to food. 
Christianity brings flavor to life. And the thing that I get so saddened by is many people in the world think the exact opposite is true. They think Christianity sucks the flavor, sucks the taste out of life. Christianity makes life miserable. That is the mindset of so many people who are on the outside looking in. And the reason that many believe that is because of Christians misrepresenting Christ misrepresenting the joy and the hope and the peace and the love of a relationship with Jesus and they're just miserable and they don't represent Jesus the way that they should and all of a sudden people look and think, man, I don't want to be a Christian because that just sucks the flavor of life from you. We should be those that are demonstrating the flavor of Christ. That as people look at our lives, they're thinking, man, I want that. Not, I want nothing to do with that, but I desire that. That sounds and looks like it tastes good. I want to try that. I want to have that peace. I want to have that hope. I want to have that love. I want to have what you have in your life. The way you live it is encouraging me to want to taste Jesus. Now, we don't want to point people to our flavor. We want to point people to Jesus' flavor. You know, I love salt on my steak. But when I'm done eating my steak, I don't say, that was some great salt. I say, that was some great steak. But the steak became better because of the salt. The job of the salt is not to make you think how great the salt is, but how great the thing is in which the salt has come into contact with. You know, as believers, we need to come into contact with unbelievers so that they say, how great is Jesus? Not how great we are. No, here's my flavor. Taste me. No, we want to point you to the one who truly is going to give you what you need. And that as we contact you, we will be able to point you to how great Jesus is. You know, salt not only brings flavor to food, but it also makes you thirsty. You know, you eat a nice bag of popcorn that's covered in salt and you don't have a drink with you. You're not going to be so happy when you're sitting through that two and a half hour movie. You know, salt makes you thirsty. You know, we've often heard the statement, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, if you add a lot of salt to his food, you can sure encourage that. He'll start to drink once there's enough salt in the system. And this is something that I think just as well, when we're that flavor of Christ, we also want to make people thirst for Jesus. But the way in which we live, the way in which we speak, the way in which we conduct ourselves among the world, that there would bring a thirst for Jesus as opposed to a rejection of Him. Well, how do we do that? You know, I think a practical thing that we can do to help us be the flavor of Christ, to help cause people to thirst for Him, is remind yourself every day why the gospel tastes good to you. Remind yourself every day and think about, you know, why is it that you enjoy a relationship with Jesus Christ? I think the best way to prepare yourself to be an advertisement for satisfying flavor of Jesus is by enjoying Him yourself every day. It's hard to kind of display, oh, Jesus is so wonderful if you don't really feel that way. And sometimes we're so focused on all our problems and all the world has coming against us because we haven't really sat back and thought, 
why is Jesus so important to me? What has he done for me in the past? What is he doing for me in the present? What does he promise to do for me in the future? And as we just dwell upon him and think about him, the flavor of Christ, we're like, oh, I'm so happy I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm so happy I'm a child of God. I'm so happy what Christ has done for me. And that flavor is just you know on my lips personally, and it just makes it natural to say, man, I'm going to spread that. When I talk, I'm going to talk about how great Jesus is because I truly believe it and feel it. When I speak and I act, it's going to be based upon my relationship with him. And so I would encourage you every day, just you know, take time to thank the Lord. Take time to think about what he's doing for you that's so great so that you can then encourage others with that reality as well to pass on the flavor of Jesus to this lost world. They don't know it. They're trying to find things that taste good. They're clueless that Jesus is the one that they need. And we can tell them when we need to. And sometimes words aren't enough, but yet they look at our life and they start to see, wow, I want that. We can be that flavor for them. So the first reason salt was so valuable in Jesus' day is because it preserves things. Because we're the salt of the earth, we need to be that preserving influence for good to this lost world. The second reason salt was so valuable is because it flavors food. And since we're the salt of the earth, we need to show the world the flavor of Christ through what we say, through how we live, to encourage them to thirst for Jesus. This world is spiritually decaying. It's searching for flavor in all sorts of ways that just aren't going to fulfill it. So we need to be those who are salt. We need to be those who are preserving We need to be those who are bringing flavor to this lost world. So Jesus challenges the disciples and us. You are the salt of the earth. But now he's going to share something else about salt in verse 13. He says this, But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Yeah, the the, the flavor of salt is great. It has a wonderful influence and impact. But but what happens when you lose that? Because Jesus is saying it's possible for salt to lose its flavor. A man by the name of Dr. Uh, Mundrell, studying rock salt in Judea, he he explained some of the reasons why rock salt in, in Judea actually loses its saltiness. And he was in the Valley of Salt, and he noted that the portions of the salt that were exposed to the elements of wind and rain and, and et cetera, that they lost their flavor. But that portion of the salt that was directly connected to the rock always remained flavorful. And the portion of the rock that lost its flavor is useless now. They would just use it, throw it on the ground. Why? Well, it keeps at least ice from growing here. Or, you know, it can just be part of, you know, the road. It's just now, it doesn't have its purpose anymore. You know, if salt in your salt shaker didn't produce flavor, you get rid of it. Well, what good is it? Yeah, I'm going to put all this on my food and it doesn't do anything. Well, you get some new salt. Or you chew gum. I like to chew gum. I don't like to just chew something in my mouth. I like the flavor of the gum. And the lots of gum flavor lasts like 30 seconds. But once it's gone... What do you do? If you're an adult, hopefully you throw it in the trash. If you're a kid, you put it under your desk. But um, you get rid of it because it's lost its flavor. It's lost its purpose. It no longer has the quality that you had gotten it for. So Jesus tells us we're the salt of the earth. We're that precious commodity that can preserve and that can bring flavor. But 
The sad reality is that many Christians lose that flavor of Christ. And I want to share four things, four reasons that we so often lose the flavor that we're supposed to have. And in losing the flavor, I also want to note what that does on our impact on this world. And these four things, they really build upon each other. I would say they kind of go in this order. The first reason that we often lose the flavor of Christ is a love for the world. In 1 John 2, 15 and 16, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. You know, when we start loving the world, we love the lust that our flesh has, the lust that our eyes, the the pride of life. That's the start of losing our flavor of Christ. That love for the world, because notice what goes on to say, because all that's in the world, guess what? It's not of the Father. The flavor of Jesus is not going to be displayed when we're loving and trying to do the things that the world does. So that's kind of the starting process of where we start to lose the flavor that we should have. And it leads to the second thing that causes us to lose flavor in Christ, and that's friendship with the world. James 4.4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This isn't saying you shouldn't have friends with non-Christians. It's speaking more of the fact that you want to be like the world. You want to do the things that the world does. And it's saying, hey, don't you realize that doing the things the world does makes you ultimately an enmity with God? You're doing the opposite of what God would want. And this is that second kind of step. As we love the world and we're drawn by the world and we're tempted by the world, we become friends with it in desiring to do what the world does. And we hang out with the world not to be salt and light to them, but to do the things that the world is doing, to engage in the sinful practices that the people in the world are engaged in. And once again, it causes us to lose more of the flavor of Christ in our life because we're being like the world around us. And that leads us to the third thing that causes us to lose our flavor. We become spotted by the world. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. God wants us to be unspotted. He doesn't want this world to corrupt us. To be in the world, but not of it. And that can be a challenge for us. Not to avoid it, to stay in it, but not to allow it to ultimately suck you in and corrupt you and you become like it. But you know what? When we become friends with the world, the next thing that happens is we become spotted. When you're going out and living and doing the things the world's going to do, it has a negative consequence in your life. And once we're spotted by the world, once again, we lose more of our flavor of Christ, which leads to the fourth thing that causes us to lose flavor and that's conformity to the world. Romans 12.2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God doesn't want us to conform to this world. He wants us to be different from the world. Now, the world loves us to have conformity to it, to be pressed into its mold is what this word is speaking about. Well, we want to, to make you just like us. 
conform, be like us, do what we do, speak like we do, agree with all the things that we believe. That's what the world wants. And sadly, when we love the world, we become friends with the world, we become spotted by the world, the natural result of that process is we come to the place where we finally say, well, let's just conform to it. Let's conform to that which we love and spend time with and been corrupted by anyway. And we see this sadly too often in Christians. And when all four of those things happen, we have a very, very hard time of sharing the flavor of Jesus Christ because we lose it through those things. David Guzik wrote this, A key thought in both the pictures of salt and light is distinction. Salt is needed because the world is rotting and decaying, and if our Christianity is also rotting and decaying, it won't be any good. Light is needed because the world is in darkness. And if our Christianity imitates darkness, we have nothing to show the world. To be effective, we must seek and display the Christian distinctive. We can never affect the world for Jesus by becoming like the world. When we conform to the world, we're no longer distinct. We lose the flavor of Jesus Christ. We lose the flavor that this world so desperately needs. And we now become very ineffective in being a witness, very ineffective in reaching the world for Christ. A stressed out woman was tailgating a man on a busy street and uh, this man slows down and finally stops at a yellow light, which just infuriates this woman who is in a hurry. And she starts honking the horn and cussing and screaming. And, you know, why aren't you driving through this yellow light? And as she's still in mid-ranch, she hears this tap on her window. She looks up and sees the police, uh, the face of a police officer who asks her to get out of the car. And he, you know, puts her in the police car and takes her to a holding cell. About an hour later, the officer returns and says, oh, I'm so sorry, this was a big mistake. When I pulled up behind you, I noticed the what would Jesus do bumper sticker and follow me to Sunday school, and I assumed the car was stolen. You know, this woman lost the flavor of Christ. She was just doing what the world does when they're in traffic. Let's cuss and scream and shout and you know, behave like a sinful person. And sadly, that's too often the way that we are and we re don't realize you know, it has an impact negatively on our witness. There you go. <laughs> John Stott says this, And when society goes bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world, but should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where's the salt? You know, and this is where we're at in the world today, and this was a convicting quote because I think too many Christians right now are throwing up their hands and saying, man, look at how ungodly and how horrible the world is, and man, they're just so bad, and it's all their fault. But what do we expect sinful people to do but sin? Whereas he says, what do we expect rotting meat to do but rot? The preservative is us, the salt. So the real question is, where's the salt? Where's the light? Where's the church? We're the one that's supposed to be impacting the world for good. We're the ones that's supposed to be bringing that change. And so if we're not seeing anything, maybe instead of saying, man, this world is so horrible, we should look personally at the church and say, what aren't we doing to reach the world the way that we should? And I think sadly, as we look at where the church world is as a whole, 
we are not being very effective in reaching the world like we should. And so we need to say, you know, where is the salt? Where is that flavorful preservative of Christ going out into the world the way that God desires it to go? If we want to see change in our country, it starts with us as believers. You know, look at the political scene right now. You look at all the things going on, and, and I know there's probably many people with just feelings of, I just want to see change. Why are they behaving this way? Why can't they be different? But you know what? The only thing that's really going to change these politicians or change whoever it is that we are frustrated with is a relationship with Christ. You know, to think that, oh man, they're just going to be really moral. They're going to be really good. They're not going to, you know, bring up, you know, lies or do this or that. You know, the fact is they're just sinful people and they're just going to continue to sin. Why? Because they do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the one thing that's going to change this culture. We want to see morality, but it comes through first a connection with the Son of God, a reality that, hey, He saved me and I accept Him. His Spirit now indwells me. And that's what ultimately brings a change to me personally, which then affects the way in which I live. And all of a sudden, yeah, we should be praying for their salvation because that's the thing that's going to change the way in which so many leaders in our country are going and, and we're frustrated. We don't want it. But yet what they need is Christ. And who's the one who has that message? The church. We're the ones who are supposed to Go into all the world and preach the gospel. You know, our country, what it ultimately needs is a revival. It needs a spiritual awakening. When you look at the history of revival, look at all of them. Where does it start? The church. They're the ones who have to get out the message. They're the ones who have to have the passion for the lost. They're the ones who have to do what God has called us to do for that to transpire. And so, so often we're like, Lord, we just want you to work in spite of me. Lord, I want you to save people. I don't want to be used by it, though. I don't want to have to go into my workplace and be salt. I don't want to have to go in my family and be a representative of you. Can't you just save all of them apart from me? Can't you just work without me? Well, yeah, God can do all things without you if he really wants to, but he chooses to use you. He wants to use you. He wants to be you be a part of that process. That's how he's chosen to work in this world. You're my children, and I want you to demonstrate what I'm like to a world that doesn't understand it. Jesus says that we are salt. I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, am I being a good representation of what I am? I am salt. You are salt. That's what we are. But are we living in a way that represents what we are? Would someone describe us in that way? Oh, yes, they're that preserving influence for good in my life. Man, they, they, they demonstrate by the way in which they live uh, this flavor for Jesus. Uh, I never wanted anything to do with Jesus, but when I spend time with them, all of a sudden now I'm drawn to Christ. I want to know more about Him. I see something in their life that I'm drawn to and desire. Would people describe us in that way? Are we really being and representing what we are? If you're examining yourself right now and you think the answer is no, let me encourage you, it's not too late to change. God wants to use us. God wants to enable us to be His witnesses, His ambassadors, the salt and light of the world. And if you think, man, I've been a horrible witness for Jesus at work or a horrible witness for Jesus in my family or a horrible witness for Jesus and you fill in the blank, it doesn't have to stay that way. God can change you. 
And you know what? That change will actually be a great opportunity to share because you come back to work and they think, what's different in you? Why aren't you acting the way that you used to? Why aren't you speaking the way that you used to? Why aren't you conducting yourself the way that you used to? Well, you know what? I got serious about my relationship with Jesus, about my witness for Jesus. And it gives you an opportunity to share about what Christ is doing in your life and how he can impact their life. It's never too late. Don't give up and think, well, I failed in this one. I don't represent Jesus like I should. It's be, Lord, I want you to change me. I want you to help me be the witness that you desire me to be. Let's pray.